Psychedelics, just to start with, psychedelics are very different than most drugs in that they are not addictive. LSD and psilocybin are the safest drugs known to man, and things like alcohol and tobacco are actually two of the most dangerous drugs. What's really most important from, from a credibility perspective is getting these medicines FDA approved. I have found no better tool than these substances, and that's why I'm such a huge proponent of them in a safe, intentional, and responsible container. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, we are in for a hot topic today. I have not done a show yet on psychedelics, and I talk about this in the episode, but it's kind of crazy how far things have come in this whole sphere. I remember just a few years ago, thinking about psychedelics and being scandalized by the idea of podcasts on the topic. And here we are airing an entire conversation about it. I am honestly very excited about the future potential here as far as the health and therapeutic benefits of psychedelics. And we talk about so many things in today's episode, the difference between legalization and decriminalization, which is something I've wondered about for a long time, the role of government in psychedelics, how psychedelics affect the brain, MDMA, psilocybin, ketamine, the importance of intention, safety, and environment. Of course, the difference between microdosing and macrodosing. Today's conversation is focused more on microdosing and so much more. I really can't wait to hear what you guys think. I also hope that I don't get censored because of this podcast, but in any case, there will be a full transcript as well as links to everything that we talked about in these show notes. Those will be at melanieavalon.com slash microdosing. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post, and again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, 
they are not one ingredient, there is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner. 
skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this fabulous conversation with Paul Austin. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So it is about a topic I have been thinking a lot about for a long time, but sort of peripherally, like I haven't really dived deep into it, but it's something that I've been wanting to personally experience, and I also have been really wanting to do an episode all on the topic. And I sort of just figured, like I do with this show a lot, when the right time happened, that the perfect source would come to me to do this interview. And that definitely happened. So I was approached by the team for Paul Austin. He's the founder of a company called Third Wave, and he also has a book called Mastering Microdosing, How to Use Subperceptual Psychedelics to Heal Trauma, Improve Performance, and Transform Your Life. And so when I got the information about this potential interview, I was just an immediate yes. I was just like, yes, <laughs> this is what I've been waiting for. So I immediately booked Paul. I got the book. I read it. It was awesome because it was the deepest dive that I was wanting and wanting to share with you guys on all things psychedelics, the history of psychedelics, how they affect us, and importantly, the difference between microdosing versus macrodosing. And that's just the surface level. It goes really deep into everything and especially the potential there is for the future of the world and humanity implementing microdosing psychedelics in our lives. So I am just so, so excited about this conversation. Paul, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast. I've been eagerly anticipating our our interview. I think it's been on the the calendar for like three or four months now. So the day is here. 
I'm stoked to dive in. I am as well. I have so many questions for you. Okay. So to start things off, so I I think I just said this, but yes, I did just say this. (laughs) So I have never done psychedelics in any capacity. I'm very interested in it. And I have questions about that. But before that, just to introduce yourself to our audience, you talk in the book all about your personal story. And something that I really liked about your personal story, it sounds like our backgrounds were very similar in the whole raised Christian kind of strict with everything. But also, like, I'm not resentful about my upbringing. And I I felt like I got a lot of values from it. And it was very strict. And like things were noted as bad, (laughs) drugs, sex, (laughs) stuff like that. What was your background, your personal story growing up and what led to your first psychedelic experiences? And I mean, it's a long story, but (laughs) why why are you doing what you're doing today? Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into it. So look, when I tell people I'm from West Michigan, like nowadays, and they know what I do professionally, they don't get it. It just is like opposite worlds. West Michigan is similar to the Bible Belt in the South in terms of conservative traditional values, widespread Christianity, quite Republican, all those sorts of things. It's like West Michigan is a hub for that. Detroit, the eastern side of Michigan, much different, but West Michigan, and particularly Grand Rapids, which is close to where I grew up, uh, is known for these traditional Christian Protestant values. And, and so I was raised in that environment. You know, my, my parents were both Democrats, so socially progressive, but also enthusiastic churchgoers. We went every Sunday for the first 18 years of my life. I probably missed church maybe once every two years, something along those lines. So it was, oh yeah, it was like every Sunday you're at church. And then not only is it the church service, but there's also, you know, second hour after church service, there's youth group on Sunday evening. So most Sundays I was spending like four hours at church. And within that, you know, I like learned a lot about Jesus. I learned a lot about the Bible. I learned a lot about the 12 disciples. And yet this whole concept of believe in God, believe in Jesus, and you'll be saved and you'll go to heaven. It never, I never really got it. I just never could really figure it out. Like, I don't know if I really trust this fully or believe this fully. I'll like, I'll walk the walk because my parents are requiring me to go, but I'm not sure I'm totally on board with everything that is being communicated from like a dogmatic perspective, because I was also a very precocious child. You know, I was rebellious. I was quite independent I did whatever I wanted to do. And so I always was questioning. I always was slightly skeptical and I was always very curious, none of which are great orientations for a more rigorous Christian upbringing. And then at the age of 16, I smoked cannabis for the first time. And soon after that, my parents found out and they sat me down on a Sunday after church. And look, I I love my parents. We still talk and have a great relationship. My dad is a phenomenal human, super kind, super loving. And they had no idea what to do with me now that I was smoking cannabis. They knew it was highly illegal. They knew that it was a drug. They thought it was incredibly bad. And so my dad looked across 
the the family room at me and essentially said, you know, I haven't been this disappointed since my brother passed away in a car accident. And of course, that was just, you know, a lot to handle. I stormed out of my house, walked around the neighborhood for like an hour, came back, ended up being grounded for like six weeks. I basically made sure my parents never found out that I that I ever smoked weed or, or did any psychedelics for, for many, many years after that. And so what I learned from that experience is clearly these drugs are misunderstood and highly stigmatized. Clearly my parents think they're awful, even though they're not nearly as bad as, as they think. And so that sent me down my own path of really starting to individuate from that upbringing. And so at the age of 19, I was going to a small private Christian liberal arts school. My dad taught there, so I got free tuition. Uh, I was about 30 minutes away from where I was where I was raised. And my best friend from high school, the same friend that introduced me to cannabis, also introduced me to psilocybin mushrooms at the age of 19. And I had an interesting experience. I did about two grams of psilocybin, which is like enough to have a few visuals, enough to have some interesting insight, but not like, you know, awe-inspiring, mystical experience, paradigm-shifting type of type of type of mushroom trip, basically. It wasn't until about five months later that I had my first experience with LSD. Uh, it was the end of my sophomore year, and I took about 250 micrograms of LSD and went hiking in the woods on the coast of Lake Michigan, these beautiful, beautiful woods, and down into the beach. It was 75 degrees, early May day, and it was just like a stunning, beautiful, connected experience. And that experience really turned me on to how incredible LSD could be. And so for the next couple of years, I just did it quite a bit. You know, I probably between, you know, the age of 19 and 21, I did higher doses of LSD and psilocybin anywhere from 15 to 20 times. What I noticed from those experiences is that I felt more connected, more present. It was easier to make decisions around, you know, healthy diet, exercise, I meditated more often. I just noticed that I felt like a better person. I felt less depressed because I also had struggled with depression a little bit and melancholy. It was just a lot of the rumination was cut out. And so for a week or two weeks or even three weeks after those experiences, I would feel amazing. But then, you know, inevitably a lot of that, those benefits would dissipate. And I'd kind of like, I'd have to go back to doing it again to feel, feel, feel this experience. So Long story short, at the age of 21, I graduate from, from university. I moved to Turkey, where I teach English for a year. While teaching English, I learn about the concept of being a digital nomad, where I can work online and travel. And so I ended up, throughout my 20s, traveling to about 70 countries, a lot in Europe and Southeast Asia. But also, I went to Nepal and hiked in the Himalayas. I went to Tanzania and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I you know, spent two weeks in the Amazon in Brazil. Uh, so I had a few other journeys along there as well. And on that sort of in that journey of my 20s, I was living in Budapest and was doing acid. Once again, a higher dose of acid with a couple friends. And this was 2015. We were just reflecting on the psychedelic space. We were reflecting on the fact that some really famous podcasters like Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan were starting to publish things on psychedelics, that there was a lot more research coming out from NYU and Johns Hopkins and that cannabis was becoming kind of reevaluated, legalized, 
in many places. And so where we landed was psychedelics are incredible tools. When used with intention and responsibility in a safe environment, they can be incredibly healing and transformative and that they will be this sort of next thing after cannabis, but that they will be way more potent and powerful than cannabis and potentially pave a new path for how we look at what it means to be human. And so in 2015, I started Third Wave with the core focus of educating people about the pros and cons of psychedelics rooted in objectivity rather than misinformation and propaganda. And at that point in time, we chose microdosing as an angle to focus on, as a lens to focus on, because we believed that microdosing was a great bridge into this sort of weird world of psychedelics, that what went wrong in the second wave of psychedelics, the counterculture, is it was high doses of LSD for everyone. Timothy Leary had this phrase, turn on, tune in, drop out. And what we saw as an opportunity with microdosing is microdosing is susceptible. It's easy for novices to begin working with. It has felt and tangible benefits and it's not going to be overly intimidating for the ego. And so microdosing has been a key focal point of what I've oriented around over these last seven or eight years. And it's just been, you know, like for me, it's always, I don't, I don't like being this person at work and this person at home. I like full integration of my life. And I feel just so grateful that I can work on a mission and a business and a vision that I feel like is significantly helping uh, a lot of people. I was listening really recently. Joe Rogan had an interview with Rick Doblin all about psychedelics. And that was really interesting. And he was talking about a really good point, which is how we have this one word of Joe was talking about how we have this one word drugs that encompasses all these things that does a disservice because really they do different things. So I'm really fascinated stepping back a little bit, because you mentioned like the stigma surrounding all of this. Why are some drugs legal, like caffeine and alcohol? And, you know, we can talk about the history of marijuana and others just not, or varying levels of legality. And you talk in the book about the evolution and legalization and decriminalization of psychedelics. I'm really interested. Why are some things okay and others not? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's funny, when I first started Third Wave in 2015, this is one of the first topics that I wrote about. Like I looked into the etymology of the word drugs. It comes from droges, D-R-O-G-E-S, which is a Latin term. And it basically stands for anything that impacts our physiology in a significant way. Because I also was trying to understand that. I'm like, why is it that heroin, cocaine, methamphetamines, crystal meth, are drugs just like psilocybin and LSD are drugs, even though they're significantly different. And so what I quickly learned is psychedelics, just to start with, psychedelics are very different than most drugs in that they are not addictive. In fact, they are anti-addictive. Clinical research shows that psychedelics can be efficacious in treating alcoholism and in treating certain types of addiction like opiate addiction. And the reason for that is because psychedelics are serotonergic agonists. So they work largely in the serotonin system rather than the dopaminergenic system, the dopamine system, like a lot of, you know, stimulants and opiates and methamphetamines work on. So first of all, from a neurobiological perspective, the reason psychedelics are anti-addictive is because they're working in a totally and completely different way compared to a lot of these other substances. And in fact, 
the former home minister of the UK, David Nutt, back in the mid-2000s, like I think 2006 or 2007, basically told the UK government that taking ecstasy, MDMA, was less dangerous than riding a horse. And so just like riding horses is not prohibited, why would you prohibit taking ecstasy? And so he was promptly fired from his job as the UK Home Minister for providing scientific evidence. And he published an article in 2010 with, there's a really cool graphic that shows that LSD and psilocybin are the safest drugs known to man, and that things like alcohol and tobacco are actually two of the most dangerous drugs, and yet these are legal, right? These are legal drugs. So why is this? So let's go back to your question. Alcohol, let's focus on alcohol, caffeine, and tobacco. So if we look at the growth of industrialization from, let's say, you know, the invention of the printing press in 1450 all the way until the second wave of psychedelics in the 1960s, what was central to industrialization was colonialism, was the slave trade, was, you know, the sort of beginning of a globalized society where things from Europe were shipped to the Americas, things from Americas were shipped to Africa, things from Africa were shipped to Europe, and there was this more or less triangle that we had between the Americas, Europe, and Africa. And what was core to that trade was tobacco from the New World would go to Europe, alcohol from the New World would go to Europe, Slaves from Africa would go to the Americas. Sugar from the New World would go to Europe. And so essentially, we utilized slaves from Africa to grow sugar, to grow tea, to grow coffee, to grow tobacco, all of these drugs. And so those were central to the economic engine of industrialism. And because they were so central, then coffee houses popped up in London and coffee houses popped up all over, you know, the 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 new colonies and tea was was sold everywhere in central, right? This whole sort of the the whole tea revolution and the American Revolution, the the Boston Tea Party, right? Like tea was central to that. So these drugs were really central to the economic engine of early industrialism. And so those quickly became normal. Those quickly became integrated. They quickly became accepted. And when other drugs started to come on the scene, you know, like peyote and mescaline in the early 20th century, cannabis and hashish, psilocybin and LSD in the 40s and 50s and 60s, these threatened this sort of economic paradigm of caffeine, tobacco, and alcohol. And so there were a lot of rationalizations then given, many of which were racist rationalizations as to why cannabis should be illegal, as to why LSD should be illegal, as to why, you know, psilocybin should be illegal. There's a quote from this guy, Richard Ehrlichman, who was high up in Richard Nixon's administration. And it goes something along the lines of, you know, we couldn't make being black illegal and we couldn't make being an anti-war protester illegal because this was during the, the Vietnam War 
protests of the 60s and all the black riots of the 60s. But what we could do is we could make the drugs that they were using illegal. And by doing that, we could then oppress them. We could then throw them in jail. We could then ensure that they do not have the freedoms that they want. And so more or less, that's how the modern war on drugs started is in the late 60s then, every drug except cannabis, tobacco, and alcohol was made illegal because of America's hegemony at that time in, in the UN and a globalized society because of how much we had done in World War II, because of how much power we had during the Cold War in the years of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. We required then every other country in the UN to adopt our drug law rules. And so quickly, every drug except caffeine, tobacco, and alcohol became illegal everywhere in the world. So that's more or less the short version of it. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I mean, that's really a paradigm shift. Like if you really think about it, because I think it's so hard to see beyond what we've been conditioned to think. This is just what I experience because I've just been raised and from culture being told that these psychedelics are, you know, in this category of bad, hard drugs. And if you just step back and look at it very objectively, and it's hard to do, like I can literally see my biases in my brain. It just doesn't make sense though. Like with that stat, <laughs> that stat you just said about the dangers of alcohol, you know, compared to psychedelics, do people die from psychedelics? So let's focus on LSD and psilocybin because there are a lot of psychedelics. It is physiologically impossible to die from taking, from overdosing on LSD or psilocybin. 
what is possible is if you make a really bad decision. So if you're having like a really bad trip or if you're in a really, really altered state and you're not in a safe environment, like, you know, people die from like jumping out of windows and running in front of cars and that can happen. But this is why we emphasize so much a third wave, the importance of education, set and setting, safe and intentional and responsible use because that is so rare and it doesn't need to happen ever, ever. You know, so physiologically, these are the safest substances known to man. You cannot die from an overdose. When we start to get into, I'm sure some of your listeners have heard of ayahuasca. That's a bit more particular. And there are a lot of sort of if, ands, and buts around that. But generally, again, ayahuasca is super, super safe. There's another one called iboga. And iboga is an incredible opiate addiction interrupt, interrupter, incredible, but it also is super intense and really hard on the heart. So there are some people who work with Iboga who have cardiac arrest. So that's why it's like, if you're going to work with something as intense as Iboga, have a doctor, a medical doctor there present with you as you're moving through it. But again, by and large, these are the safest substances known to man. And not only are these the safest substances known to man, but they are the substances that we have the longest relationship with as a species. We've been, we've been eating psilocybin mushrooms for tens of thousands of years as a species. There's archaeological evidence of peyote, which is a cacti in Central and South America. There's archaeological evidence that an indigenous people in Mexico have been working with peyote for 15,000 years. So we have a long, rich lineage with these medicines, which I think is another great indicator as to their benefits and potential for healing. Actually, yeah, to that point, you mentioned in the book, so is it Staminitz? Is that how you say his name? Paul Stamets. Yeah, Stamets. How he has his evolutionary theory about... Like the stone ape theory and, and all that. Yeah. The psychedelics might have played a role in our vision and our development as like hunter-gatherers, I guess, or our ability to, to hunt and our brain development. While we're talking, though, about the, the legality aspect of everything, it's funny. Even something like marijuana and CBD, like seeing how far that that's come, because especially with podcasting, because I've been podcasting for s- over six years now. And I remember when I first started, we would get a question about like CBD and fasting. And my co-host and I at the time, this was like at the very beginning, we were like, I don't know if we should talk about this. Like, is this too? And then, you know, fast forward to now CBD, like one of our longest sponsors is a CBD company. Like it's really fascinating to see just with the CBD example how fast, or at least from my perspective, how fast it went from being sketchy to now brands left and right and very accepted. What do you think is the potential for that with the psychedelic world? And also, I'm so interested in the difference between like legalization and decriminalization. Yeah. So what's happening with all of that? That's a great question, Melanie. And I think it's important just so your listeners have a sense of the legitimacy and credibility of what we're talking about. Because what most people don't know is that psilocybin mushrooms are actually now legal in Oregon. So you can go to the state of Oregon. They're not just in a dispensary model like cannabis. You have to work with a certified facilitator. But you can go to Oregon and legally work with psilocybin mushrooms. Colorado. And the recent election just passed a proposition called Prop 122, which decriminalizes all possession of psychedelic medicines and legalizes psilocybin to be used in service centers by the end of 2024. So we now have two states 
that have legalized psilocybin. So you, you can you can tell that it's following a similar path as cannabis because early on there's early on in cannabis there were what, what what are called the cacao states. Canada, California, Oregon, Washington, and Colorado. I don't know how all that adds up to cacao. It does somehow, but I just remember doing it in my head. Yeah, I'm trying to do it in my head too, but I'm like, I don't know. But that's just the phrase that I heard. Where's the A? Exactly. Where is the A? Maybe it's like Washington or Cal no, California or Canada or Oh, like C A. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So so and California also has a bill that's very similar to Colorado's that they think will pass reasonably soon. And once California goes, you know, it's the sixth biggest economy in the world. That's going to be a huge indicator for, for the rest of the states that are really looking at. There, there are also several states that are looking at legislative bills right now to medicalize psychedelics for therapeutic purposes. So there's a ton happening at the state level. Outside of that, a lot of cities have decriminalized possession, meaning you can no longer get arrested for having personal possession of some of these plant medicines. Oakland is one of the biggest ones. Detroit has also decriminalized it. And there are several other cities as well that have, have decriminalized plant medicines. And then, and I think what's really most important from, from a credibility perspective is getting these medicines FDA approved. And so right now we're in phase three, the end of phase three clinical trials for MDMA, also known as ecstasy, to be used to treat PTSD. They expect that to be medically available in 2024 to treat PTSD. And then we are also in, I think, phase three clinical trials for psilocybin for both treatment-resistant depression and major depressive disorder. And they expect that to be approved by the FDA, ideally in 2024, but no later than 2025. And so within just a couple of years, there will be widespread medical access to psychedelics through the FDA to treat PTSD, treatment-resistant depression, and major depressive disorder. And that's important that's essential because our current treatments just don't work that well, right? There was a, a recent article that was published and study that was published that showed that SSRIs are actually no better than placebo. They work about 40% of the time. And what we know with psilocybin is that it's about two times as effective as regular treatments. And we know with MDMA for PTSD that it's about three times as effective as conventional treatments. So while we're living in the midst of a mental health crisis, it is essential that people have access to these medicines that actually work. And this comes back to my own mission and why I love doing this, why I started Third Wave, why I do all these podcasts and whatnot is, you know, I'm really into personal development. I'm really into growth and evolution. I'm really into human potential. And in my intentional work with psychedelics, I have found no better tool, no more efficacious tool than these substances. And that's why I'm such a huge proponent of them in a safe, intentional, and responsible container. So I definitely want to dive more into that. Some last follow-up questions just about the current topic. So can you quit, because I have wondered this for so long. So the, the decriminalization means you're not allowed to have it, but you're allowed to have it, essentially? You're not allowed to sell it, but you're allowed to have it. Yeah, you're not allowed to sell it, become a drug dealer, if you will, but you are allowed to have personal possession of it. And it's even, I would even go so far as to say, it's not really actually that you're allowed to have personal possession of it. It's that you won't go to jail if you have personal possession of it. 
but you can still like in some of these jurisdictions, they can still write you, you know, a citation or a misdemeanor for having it. So it's kind of like a moving violation in traffic. Yeah. Think of it as like a traffic, like a parking ticket. That's a good way to frame it. I've wondered about that for so long. So thank you. And then the other question, what about ketamine? Great question. So ketamine, ketamine is a disassociative. It has been used since the 1960s, largely as an anesthetic in hospitals and the emergency room in particular for children because it's extremely safe. And in the last 25 years or so, there's been a resurgence of interest in it from a psychiatric perspective. So looking at how ketamine can be useful for treating depression, there is a substance that has already been approved by the FDA called Spravato that's made by Johnson & Johnson that can be useful for depression. And then there's just generic ketamine everywhere, basically at this point in time. So I, I look at ketamine as like medical marijuana. If you struggle with depression or anxiety, you can more likely than not get a prescription to ketamine. And there are a lot of clinics that have popped up that are working with ketamine. There are a lot of practitioners who work with ketamine. So that is medically and legally available in every state across the United States at this point in time. It does require a prescription because it is a Schedule Three substance. And ketamine, just to emphasize, go back, going back to my previous point about psychedelics being anti-addictive, ketamine is slightly more addictive than the classic psychedelics. So it's just good to be mindful of if you want to work with ketamine, just be mindful of that and aware of that to only use it in an intentional container for healing and transformation and to not necessarily use it as a recreational drug. So addictive in the aspect, does it create withdrawal symptoms? Probably if you were to do it every day for a period of time, eventually you would be suffering from withdrawal sy symptoms if you, if you just cold turkey stop. I don't think they're significant by any stretch, uh, not like trying to get off of benzodiazepines or SSRIs or anything like that, but there probably would be slightly withdrawal symptoms. And it's just like, it's disassociative. So it's, 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 it's the way that I frame it, it's like similar to cannabis and how it's addictive. People just like the disassociation. They like not having to confront the reality of where they are and their situation. And so ketamine is just an easy thing that you can take to check out. And if you do it too often, it can create a lot of bladder issues, which is not a good thing. And people, people more than anything, just get addicted to the, to the experience of it, the checking out part of it. And the, there are withdrawals, but like I said, they're not as bad as a lot of you know, SSRIs, benzodiazepines, even alcohol, tobacco, things like that. With the psychedelics, do people have that experience where they crave that, that feeling? And I guess we, I guess we would need to answer these questions for microdosing versus macrodosing as well. Yeah, all of this is, this is great, a great flow to follow because the answer is these are not physiologically addictive. So if you're microdosing twice a week, for seven months, like I did when I first started microdosing, I took LSD twice a week for seven months. I stopped, no withdrawal symptoms whatsoever. So there are no withdrawal symptoms with microdoses of psilocybin and LSD or microdoses of psychedelics. You could microdose twice a week for a year, stop cold turkey, and you'll have no withdrawal symptoms. What does happen though, is people get psychologically attached to the substance. Meaning, you know, for someone who struggled with depression for a long time, they've been on SSRIs, they don't work, they start microdosing, finally something that works. Hell yeah. Keep, they, they keep microdosing, they do it two or three times a week, let's say for six months, their life gets substantially better, their depression lifts, their mood improves, and then they run out of a substance. And then they have to confront the fact that they might fall back into old patterns. And so I think this is why it's important 
that microdosing is not looked at as a magic pill. And I think this is very difficult for a lot of America to do because we're so conditioned to, to, to want to have magic pills that do everything for us. But instead to look at microdosing as a catalyst, as a tool for neuroplasticity, as a, as a channel that can open the opportunity to integrate new ways of being, but that we should not give our power away to the substance itself. Instead, we should commit to a microdosing protocol, let's say. We should do it twice a week for two months. And as part of that protocol, we should explore, why is it that I'm depressed? Why is it that I have anxiety? Why is it that I'm socially anxious? Why is it that I drink a lot of alcohol? And then what are the fundamental things that I need to start to shift? Do I need to change my friend group? Do I need to start to see a therapist? Do I need to you know, make better food choices? Do I need to you know, treat my wife or my spouse or my partner better? Right? The awareness then that comes from that microdosing protocol should allow for shifts. And because of the neuroplastic benefits of microdosing, it's easier to make those shifts than without the microdoses. So I think that's, that's for microdosing. For high doses, what can sometimes happen is people get lost in the sauce is a phrase that I hear sometimes. So, so they'll do mushrooms in a high dose container. They'll have a profound insight and breakthrough experience. And then they'll do mushrooms every week for the next year. And I think what's important is that there's ample time given for integration, that the insights and downloads that come from that psilocybin journey or that ketamine experience that you actually give them enough space to weave them in and that you don't necessarily try to continue to come back to the medicine again and again and again in a short period of time because that can lead to mania that can lead to disassociation that can lead to fractured you know a fractured sense of self it's really important that there's balance with how we're working with psychedelics so the metaphor that i often use melanie is like a dentist you know, every six months you go to the dentist, you get a deep clean. Sometimes it feels amazing. Sometimes it doesn't feel so amazing. But every time after you leave the dentist, you're grateful you did it because your teeth are clean. Your mouth is clean. It feels amazing. And then every day you show up, you floss your teeth, you brush your teeth, you use mouthwash, you, you maintain a clean mouth. But you know that just with the way that life works, you're going to have to go back to that dentist again just to get that deep clean again. But the more often you brush your teeth, the more often you floss, the more the better you take care of yourself, the less the less confronting and painful that dentist experience is going to be. And I think it's similar with psychedelics. Every 6 months or so, that high dose psychedelic experience is a great cleanse. It's a great cleanse. And then every day we show up, we meditate, we do breath work, we do yoga, we have contemplative practices that help us to stay present, connected, aware. And then maybe every now and then we take a microdose or a lower dose as a way to deepen our yoga practice, as a way to deepen our meditation, as a way to better connect with friends. And we look at that as a nice adjunct in our overall flow of healing and transformation. I don't know if this study has been done. Oh, which by the way, before I say that, something I really appreciated about your book and listeners, if you're interested in this topic, definitely get his book, Mastering Microdosing, is you have a lot of study, well, as much as there can be for the research that's being conducted, a lot of studies and clinical literature and all of this. So, and, you know, references. And so it's a really, really valuable resource for people. Do you have any thoughts? Because I'm really interested on the experience of people 
I would love to see a study with the four different types of people. So people who have only done microdosing, people who have done microdosing, and then macrodosing, people who have only done macrodosing, and the people who have done macrodosing, and then microdosing. All of that to say, the options of doing one, both, either, neither, do they inform each other? So like if you've done microdosing and then you do macrodosing, is that a different experience? Or if you've done macrodosing and then microdosing, is that different? You mentioned earlier microdosing being a bridge to this whole world. So I'm just wondering about the experiences people have doing, you know, the combinations of them. That's a great question, Melanie. So I think I think a good frame to come into this with, what states do psychedelics facilitate? Right there, there's a lot in common with a psychedelic state as there is with a deep state of breathwork, or going into a float tank, or meditating in a ten day vipassana, or doing even sauna cold plunge, hot cold, hot cold, hot cold. We can facilitate similar states of being. Also, fasting, right? Anyone who's done a week long fast or a vision quest knows what that feels like. In the old days, right, dancing. Dancing for hours and hours and hours on end would get us into these ecstatic states. Self-flagellation would get us into these ecstatic states. So there are, there are many roads to the same destination. And so when we're looking at that relationship between macrodoses and microdoses, what we're really asking is how quickly do you want to wade in to a deep non-dual state? And for a lot of folks, if they've never meditated before, if they've never done deep breath work, if they've never really been into that deep non-dual state, just to take five grams of mushrooms right off the bat could actually be more harmful than helpful. It could push them too far beyond their comfort zone. A good metaphor for this is CrossFit, right? You see this a lot in, in things like CrossFit where people just get pushed too far too fast and they end up with massive injuries as a result of that. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. So I think what's really important is first, how much experience does the individual have with contemplative states? How much experience does the individual have with these states of non-duality, with mystical experience? If it's nothing, then probably it's good to maybe start with a float tank, to start with some breath work 
or to, you know, start with a microdose to see how that feels. And then slowly as they become more familiar with these altered states of consciousness to wade deeper and deeper and deeper in. So the metaphor that I often use to describe this is like when we're learning how to swim at a young age, you know, hopefully our parents didn't just throw us in the deep end and say, figure it out, Johnny. Hopefully, if we had good parents, they put swimmies on, they paired us with a swimming teacher, they helped, they helped us to hold the side initially, we kind of learned how to kick a little bit, and then we eventually went out into the shallow end, maybe we could touch, and we felt good in the shallow end, and then as we got more comfortable in this really new and novel environment of the pool or water, we went deeper and deeper and deeper, and all of a sudden, you know, we're jumping off the diving board and doing flips and having a great time. So I think that metaphor for contemplative states applies. It's like sometimes people just got to learn the the fundamentals. They got to feel like it's easy. They got to feel like it's not too far out of their comfort zone. And then as they get more and more comfortable with these weird altered states of being, then they go deeper and they look at, you know, ayahuasca or five grams of mushrooms or, you know, bufo, alvarius, the toad, and they have an opportunity to explore that as well. Because a lot of folks They don't want to, as you mentioned, they don't want to just take five grams of mushrooms. I have a lot of clients and a lot of people who go through our programs who they start microdosing first and they slowly work their way up. They do 50 milligrams, which is a real microdose. They do 250 milligrams. They go to 500 milligrams, maybe a gram, then maybe to two grams, and they slowly work their way up. And that's a great way to do it because throughout that whole process, you're building a relationship with this intelligence. Right? These, these mushrooms, ayahuasca, these sacred plant medicines have an intelligence in and of themselves. And so part of safe and intentional use of these psychedelics, these plant medicines, is actually communicating in some ways with these medicines through experience, through trial and error, through hands-on. And then, you know, if someone has already had a lot of high-dose experiences, microdosing can be a great integrative tool. The way that I have framed it is, you know, I go back to those early LSD and psilocybin experiences that I shared with your audience. For a week or two weeks or three weeks after, you know, I had this sort of open window of neuroplasticity where everything just felt more flowy and easy. And then eventually that would sort of shut down and, you know, dissipate and blah, 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 blah. So when I heard about microdosing, I thought, oh, this is a great way to elongate that window of neuroplasticity, to keep it open Instead of just for a week or two, maybe for a month or two months or three months, so it is easy to continue to make behavioral changes overall. So I think that's the other way to think of microdosing as an adjunct to that high-dose experience is it can really help with the process of integration. So we can take these insights and downloads from high-dose experiences and actually make them tangible in reality. The microdosing experience for somebody who's never done anything, I'm sure it's different for different people, but do you feel it? Like, like, like what, what happens? Is it like a mood shift, a vibe shift? Like, what do you actually feel for microdosing? Paul Stamets, who I mentioned in the book, I had a chance to interview him a few months ago. And the way he framed it is it's a sub-intoxicating dose. So the subtitle I use in my book, Mastering Microdosing, how to use sub-perceptual Psychedelics to Heal Trauma, Improve Performance, and Transform Your Life. That was the initial definition that was laid out by Dr. James Fadiman, who's more or less the father of microdosing. But what 
we've come to realize over the last you know five, six, seven years in doing this work through third wave and with microdosing is that a lot of people get confused then. Can I feel it? Can I not feel it? If I feel it, is it a true microdose then? And so an easier way to think about it is sub-intoxicating. It's a dose level where maybe maybe you do feel a little more euphoria, or maybe you do feel like I took, for example, I took a little bit of acid this morning, a little bit of LSD. I took 10 micrograms. It just so happens to be a holiday in the psychedelic world called Bicycle Day, which is the day that the world's first ever LSD experience happened. Really? Today? Today. Yeah. Good timing. Good timing. April 19, 1943, the inventor of LSD, Albert Hoffman, takes 250 micrograms of LSD, which is not a microdose, everyone. Takes 250 micrograms of LSD. All of a sudden notices that he's starting to trip pretty hard, takes his bicycle, rides it home, and ends up having this like full-blown mystical experience with, with LSD. And so to honor the, the legacy and the memory of Albert Hoffman, this morning during my morning meditation, I took about 10 micrograms of LSD, a microdose. And, you know, I feel, I taught a lecture right before this, so I feel a little bit more articulate. When I'm microdosing, I feel like I have a little bit more energy. Microdoses of LSD are more dopaminergenic, and dopamine is tied to focus, attention, and motivation. So I feel a little bit more focused. My mood is a little bit more brighter. And uh, generally, life just feels good. And that won't necessarily be the case for all people who microdose. Some folks during their microdosing protocols have to confront shadow. They have to, they have to you know, release repressed emotions like anger and sadness and grief. And so sometimes it can be challenging as well. So I think what, what is important is even in a microdosing protocol, to do it with a therapist or a coach or a practitioner or a facilitator, someone who can be present with you and for you as you move through that experience. Because the end goal is a better mood, more energy, more integrated, more whole, but as we all know, anyone who has embarked on a healing journey, healing is not always easy. Healing is sometimes messy. It's not all rainbows and butterflies. We sometimes have to confront certain demons. And having the support and the courage to do that is where psychedelics can really, really help accelerate the overall process. Something I loved in the book, you talk about, all about the studies that have been done on how psychedelics affect the brain and the different networks and how you know these seemingly forgotten or parts of the brain that we don't normally use light up and how it compares to dream states. Is there the concern, like I've heard stories, at least with high dose psychedelics where people say it like changed their personality. Like, like they were like a different person, you know, maybe not for the better. Like, so how does it actually change the brain? And is it more of a concern like when you're younger and you have a developing brain versus later how can the brain actually change? Another great question. You're really hitting it today with with all the great questions. I love, yeah, I love, I love your interview style. It's 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 great. So a couple caveats here, right? Like psychedelics must be used in a safe and intentional container. A lot of the ways that people use them, if they've had this sort of bad experience, has had negative consequences for a long term, it's because it's been used typically, you know, in combination with alcohol or at raves and festivals, or they've done way too much, or it's poly drug use, they're doing that plus four or five other things. That's most often the case. And so what matters a lot is the container that is created for it, that there's preparation, that there's adequate attention paid to integration. And that, you know, I did LSD for the first time at the age of 19. A lot of indigenous tribes and, and groups of people, not a lot, some use 
psychedelics as a rite of passage at the age of 13 or 14. Consistent psychedelic use at a young age can definitely impact brain development, and that is not recommended whatsoever. But sometimes a a high-dose experience, a sort of an initiatory process, can be really beneficial. Like I'm really grateful that I did LSD at the age of 19 because it really helped to send me down a path that that I, I felt very aligned with from a super young age. Psychedelics offer a deconditioning process. They help us to decondition from all of these expectations and really tune in to what it is that we really want. With that being said, there are some people who should not be working with psychedelics. Anyone who has a predisposition to psychosis or schizophrenia should not be working with psychedelics. That's central and key. And then anyone with you know a history, a family history of personality disorders should be very mindful about working with psychedelics. So there are definitely some small segments of people that should not be touching these substances whatsoever because it could potentially send them down a path of psychosis and schizophrenia. So just to just to land that intention, a safe container, preparation and integration. And and if you have a family history of psychosis or personality disorder, probably best not to work with these these substances. To clarify, when you say container, you mean like the environment and the setting, not the actual literal container right? That it's in. Yeah. Yeah. Like have a set and setting where you feel really comfortable in like your house or a friend's house or the woods or something where you feel safe, you feel calm, you feel held. That's what I mean by the the container. Because what psychedelics are doing, and this gets into the second part of your question, is psychedelics are facilitating incredible connectivity between both hemispheres of the brain. So there's brain scans from Imperial College out of 2014 that show your brain on placebo and your brain on a high dose of psilocybin. And the connectivity and the communication between the two hemispheres is incredible to see with that high dose of psychedelics. And that, 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 you know, a lot of times when people have these high doses, they experience what's called synesthesia, where they can taste colors and they can feel music. And synesthesia is because of that connectivity between, between both hemispheres of the brain. Here's a huge question I have. Huge. I've wondered this for so long. So often, again, no experience of my own with these substances. Often in movies and TVs, when they're tripping in the scenes, the characters will be experiencing the same thing. Like they'll be seeing the same thing. And I've asked my friends who have done this and they say that that happens and that blows my mind. I don't understand. (laughs) So can people together experience the same thing, even though they're taking it separately? I don't understand this idea. (laughs) So are you familiar with like Jungian psychology at all? I don't think so. Okay. The idea of like the conscious, the subconscious, the collective unconscious. Oh, Jung, like Carl Jung? Yeah, Carl Jung. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jungian psychology, right? So, So Jung talked about this collective unconscious. Aldous Huxley, who was a pioneer, you know, a really well known writer, he wrote a book called The Doors of Perception in the 1950s about his mescaline experiences. And he talked about how psychedelics, in normal waking consciousness, we only experience about 10% of what we can experience because that helps us to stay focused on the things that need to get done and handled. But when we open, when we work with psychedelics, we open the aperture of our consciousness. So all of a sudden, these things, these emotions, these stories, these memories that have been stuffed into the subconscious or the unconscious, that is a lot of the healing potential of psychedelics as those come forward, we're able to confront those, we're able to work with those, we're able to have a catharsis with those and integrate those to become a more whole individual. And so when we're working with psychedelics, we're opening that aperture. And so then this sort of unconscious 
right? This, 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 what, 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 what people might call the overmind. We, we get plugged into something that is much greater than ourselves. And so people who are journeying together may often have these sort of ex- paranormal experiences where, like, I'll, I'll give you an example. I was in a ceremony a few weeks ago. I was drinking ayahuasca in Mexico. And during the ceremony, one of the lead facilitators, the shaman, came over with a hawk wing and and like had me had me stretch out my arms and gave me wings, which was a really like beautiful and, and meaningful experience. And I was chatting with someone else in that container. And keep in mind, it's like pitch black. No one, you can't see the person next to you in this container. And so someone who was across the room from me was like, Paul, I had this vision in the ceremony where I saw you with wings. And I was like, Armando, who is the lead facilitator, came over and gave me wings. And so people experience things, they see things with this sort of subconscious or unconscious mind that wouldn't normally be possible in just normal waking state consciousness. Now, whether or not everyone is going to experience the same visuals and the same things is up for discussion, but it's very commonplace for multiple people to have similar visions, to have similar experiences when they're all in the same, when they're all in the same space. Hi friends, I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard Heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours. 
and it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits, not gonna lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you wanna boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep and or optimize your partying, you need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm gonna use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS, they're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. I actually find that to be one of the most convincing things as far as just getting rid of the stigma of it being like woo-woo or people just losing their grasp on reality. I mean, I just find that very telling. If people are experiencing similar things, that's fascinating to me. Big question. What do you do at Third Wave? Where are you based? Or is it just virtual? Everyone's virtual. I have team members in Germany and Malaysia and Utah and California and Florida and New York, all over. So... It's education-based, I'm assuming. Like, So how do people actually engage in this? I think for me, like my biggest concern, talking about feeling safe in the container and the setting, is I would just be paranoid of doing something that, you know, that I thought I could get in trouble for. Yeah. So how do people actually do this? Yeah. Prohibition is not a great set and setting for psychedelic experiences because of the illegal nature, right, of it. And that, that can create issues and challenges. So So what we've created at Third Wave is we have three core pillars, education, a provider network, and community. So, you know, we have a ton of guides. My whole thing is I want to democratize education so that we as a culture can become more psychedelically literate. And so first and foremost, it's to learn. It's to learn about these different medicines. It's to learn about the different pros and cons, to learn about the different experiences that can be facilitated through these medicines. So that's step one is, is learning about it teaching yourself, educating. We have a podcast as well that I've hosted for seven years now. You know, We have over almost 200 episodes now that we publish through the podcast. And I interview clinicians, researchers, doctors, therapists, coaches, writers, artists, right? you name it. 
And, and we've, we've, we do a ton, ton of interviews on that. So first and foremost is education. Once you learn about the experience, then it's how do you find a safe and trustworthy provider? And we, we sort of separate that into four categories. Clinics. So as we talked about, ketamine clinics are now legal. A lot of folks are going into that. Retreats. So although psychedelics are illegal in most places, there are, like I set up a legal psychedelic retreat in the Netherlands where psilocybin is legal. Psilocybin is legal in Jamaica. So there are psilocybin retreats there. A lot of these medicines are decriminalized in Mexico and Costa Rica. So a lot of folks will go do you know retreats in Central and South America as well. And then therapists, right? There are a lot of therapists who work with ketamine legally. There are a lot of therapists who also do underground work with psilocybin and with MDMA. And so part of it is then how do you find a trustworthy therapist who you can work with? And then we have a lot of coaches because we have a training program for coaches. So if there are any coaches, facilitators, practitioners who actually want to potentially work with psychedelics in their practice, we train them in what I call the skill of psychedelics to be able to weave it in. And coaches are really much more about the assessment, prep, and integration, not the actual experience itself. And then after we have these experiences, right, they often you know, shake up our, our view of reality, which is where a lot of the, the benefits come from, is we often need to be deconditioned from our current scope of reality in order to step into a new way of being. So psychedelics facilitate this death and rebirth process. And what's so necessary and needed as part of that healing process is to feel like you're in a supportive community as well. So we also offer a supportive community where people can essentially find the others that they can be in touch with and in contact with as they move through this new journey. And the, the key sort of vision or mission of Third Wave is how do we make these medicines accessible, legally accessible to everyone? And I think by educating people, by creating a provider network of trustworthy, vetted, verified providers, and by you know really nurturing a community of folks who are interested in doing this work, that to me is the key for cultural integration. So we still have a long ways to go in terms of legal accessibility, we're really just starting off, but that is so necessary so folks like you can actually feel like they can fully surrender and they don't have to be paranoid or worried about you know breaking the law and potentially getting in trouble. And I love in the book, you talk all about, you have a nice chapter on leadership and how psychedelics could help with just changing our world and <laughs> how companies happen. And you talk about the different levels of community tribes. It's, it's very cool. Your experience with your company what has it been like having a business model, you know, based on this? Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, nothing has ever happened. And I always knock on wood when I say that. I, I have managed to stay on the right side of the law. I sort of know the lines not to cross. So we don't provide any of these psychedelics. We do have a mushroom grow kit so people can grow their own mushrooms if they wish to pursue that path. But a lot of what we do is just education and helping to navigate it. You know, these are still Schedule One substances from a federal perspective. These are still highly illegal. And so we just have to be very careful about the sort of sourcing process, if you will. I mean, I might be on a list somewhere. I also know that like when it comes to when it comes to psychedelics, the DEA has made it explicitly clear that they it's not a priority. That that going back to the conversation about other drugs, drugs like fentanyl, cocaine opiates are way more dangerous, way more addictive, and way more harmful. And so a lot of the time and energy that the DEA and other, you know, the police and, and governments are focused on is these harder drugs. They are, they simply at this point don't really care about psychedelics, which is awesome for anyone who really wants to explore it. Is there a concern about fentanyl lacing of psychedelics? 
only with white powders like MDMA. MDMA is a white powder. So if anyone is looking to work with MDMA, you always want to test your substances to make sure that it's pure MDMA. But with things like psilocybin mushrooms or even LSD, you know, psilocybin mushrooms are a mushroom. So ketamine is also a white powder. So if someone is sourcing ketamine illegally or underground and like a, a white powder, they also need to test that. So with the white powders, MDMA and ketamine, there does need to be, you know, drug testing that's done. But for the other plant medicines or fungal medicines like mushrooms, there's really little to no concern about fentanyl in those. Awesome. Well, this has been so amazing. I want to be respectful of your time. I just so, so appreciate what you're doing. I will just mention as one like last thing that to speak to the stigma that we were talking about in the beginning and the role of government. Another thing that Joe Rogan was talking about in that episode was how one of the, like the major studies that was used to demonize, was it psilocybin or LSD where they were actually doing it with meth? Like they were doing it with the wrong substance. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was with MDMA. Yeah, it was with MDMA. That they said it was eating holes in the brain and that it was they were actually using methamphetamine and not MDMA. Like they were using the wrong drug. That's so upsetting to me. So upset. <laughs> so upsetting. Cuz because once the message is out there, you it's really hard to like undo that. Even if you do like retract it and say this happened, it's just upsetting. But what's not upsetting <laughs> is everything that you're doing to really spread awareness about all this and I really cannot thank you enough. Um, I think it's so, so valuable. So how can people get more involved? Where can they find your work? What links can you put out there? So thethirdwave.co is the website. You know, we have a newsletter that we send out every week. We have a podcast that we publish every week. We have a YouTube channel where we publish educational videos about psychedelics. We also have a directory of providers that I mentioned. And within a month or two, we'll be rolling out an app that people can download the third wave app, which is a community where people can find the others and connect with other people who are interested in this path. We also have, if there are any practitioners or coaches who are listening to this, we have a training program for coaches and more information on that can be found on thirdwave.co as well. And then finally, if folks want to reach out and they have any questions personally for me, I am on Instagram and Twitter at paulaustin3w. Awesome. Well, the last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize really relates to this more and more each day, how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I think, you know, I'm really grateful for the the shift in conversation around psychedelics since I started Third Wave in 2015. You know, when we started in 2015, these were still heavily stigmatized, not well understood. Very few people were interested in them. And now, eight years later, they're one of the, the trendiest and hottest topics out there. There's a lot of educational resources. And so I'm just so grateful for the progress that we've made, for the awareness that is, that is being brought to these, these, these medicines, and for the, I think, optimistic hope that they provide for, for a better future, for, for mental health, for the environment for our communities. I really think that these are incredible medicines when used with intention and responsibility. And it's always, you know, I just remain incredibly grateful and and humble that I get to do this work and and I get to be sort of a spokesperson for for these these substances and these medicines. Well, thank you so much for doing that because I just really I mean, I haven't even 
done it, but I just see all of the potential and the effects that it can have. And I'm really excited about, you know, the change in culture and the stigma and legalization and access. And you're really a huge catalyst in that happening. So thank you so much for what you're doing. This was such a pleasure. I just really enjoyed today's conversation and I'm looking forward to the future of it all. Thank you, Melanie. It was a pleasure to chat with you for the, for the podcast today. Thanks, Paul. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.